All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have a, in the Red Pew Bible, it is page 658. Uh, this, this book is about searching for really the meaning of life. Those kind of big transcendent sort of questions that every single one of us, not just once or twice, but in multiple points in our life that we are faced with, that we consider and we think through. Um, this book presents two different visions of life. One vision is kind of defined as life under the sun, a life lived as if all you see is all that you get, a life that is kind of, you know, not seen in light of God, which this teacher, this, the author of the book calls himself the teacher, uh, he refers to as the meaningless life. And the other life described is a life lived before God. That's the key to understanding this book. And so this morning, I want to start off with a thought experiment, if that's okay with you guys. Hope you, you, you're awake this morning to, to use your thinking powers. So this thought experiment comes from Viktor Frankl. I might, I might be quoting him off and on regularly throughout this sermon series. He is the the, the brilliant psychologist who survived the Nazi concentration camps and wrote extensively afterwards about meaning and life afterwards. If you haven't read his stuff, I can't encourage it more. He places before us a theoretical situation, all right? So put your hats on, all right, here's, uh, and he's a doctor, so there's a little doctor verbiage here, but just get past that, here's what he says. Let us imagine a man who has been sentenced to death. He's in jail, sentenced to death. In a few hours before his execution, he has been told that he is free to decide on the menu for his last meal, anything he wants. The guard comes into his cell and asks him what he wants to eat, and he offers him all kinds of delicacies. But the man rejects all of the suggestions. He thinks to himself that it is quite irrelevant whether he stuffs good food into his stomach uh, into the stomach of his organism or not, as if in, you know, as in a few hours, everything will no longer be alive. And even the feelings of pleasure that could still be felt in the organism's cerebral ganglia, the brain that registers those feelings of pleasure, right? It all seems pointless in view of the fact that in two hours, all of it will be destroyed forever. Is that man correct in thinking that way? Is there a point to having a delicious meal if you're on death row with two hours to go? Did that remove meaning from enjoying pleasure? That's kind of the conversation that Ecclesiastes 2 is all about. So if you're thinking, huh, that's an interesting question. Well, let's see what the teacher, how he guides us to answer that question. Because really that question, uh, it puts pleasure to the test. Right? It's putting pleasure to the test. And that's what he does here. Beginning in verse 1 in chapter 2, he says this. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you. Test his own heart, right? With pleasure to find out what is good. Or in other words, some translations may say to find the good life. You know, I'm going to put t pleasure to the test to see what, what is the good life? How, how, how do we find this? So here the teacher of wisdom is inviting us, right? Uh, chapter one, he calls himself the teacher. He is one who gives wisdom. So we're in his classroom for the next 10 weeks. And in this life here, which is the life under the sun, okay, 
He is putting pleasure to the test. It's allures, it's attractions, and to see, you know, what if he just indulged in everything? Okay, what if he just like went headlong in indulgence at everything? He's a king. He has significant resources to do really anything he wants in his country. So that is what he does. What if he just indulged in everything? What would he find in his soul deep within? Would he find meaning? Would he find what he's looking for? He keeps going here. But that also proved to be meaningless. Well, that's the summary statement, right? But we'll see all the things that he did. Laughter, I said, it's foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? And here's all the things he did. I tried cheering myself with wine and and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now, no translation is perfect. The NIV is a little weak here. And in verse three, I tried. The phrase there is much more than just I tried. It's, it's I searched, explored my heart. Some other translations may see that, right? I searched, I explored my heart as I cheered myself with wine and embraced folly, right? This was a, a real deep, you know, existential search right? As he embraced um, all these things to come, he was searching as he indulged. But why, right? Why would he apply the depths of his heart to his willingness to experience such indulgence, right? He said this, I wanted to see what was worthwhile to do while I'm alive, right? There's only a few days we have under the sun. What's worthwhile for me to do? What is it, right? So let's see if all these pleasurable activities will do the trick if he'll scratch the itch. So here he goes in verse four. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water grows of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other, other slaves born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and promises. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. I say group of women for, I'm sure you can figure that one out. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my work and this was the reward for my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, here we go, everything was meaningless. That word habel, right? It's meaningless. Yeah, it, it kind of means out of reach. It means mysterious. It means nothing was there, right? It, it's, it's, there, there's no meaning within it. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So great building projects, building houses, planting vineyards, making gardens and parks, fruit trees, reservoirs, and all these things, right? He, he, he amassed gold. He even had like a live band, like following him around. You know, he had this group of women that he could just, you know, solely for his own pleasure. His greatness increased and increased and increased. And all he could find was nothing, actually, nothing 
as he indulged himself, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained by it all. It was all mysteriously without meaning, out of reach, right? So here's a local example, the best I can come up with. Um, I've said it before, you know, but I, w- my family is members at, at Winter Tour down the street. I think it's one of the most beautiful places on earth, right? At world-class gardens, thousand acres of land, 175 bedroom house full of, you know, interesting things. And um, it, it's, if you've seen it in springtime, you know, the place is absolutely gorgeous. And so really think about this, okay? Imagine that someone built all of that that's just right down the street here, which is this, this huge and, and amazing and, and beautiful and glorious. And they created that estate and they had all the funds to do it. Or let's imagine you did. You, you created that estate. You built it. You had all the funds to do so, but you did it for your, your sole pleasure, just for you, right? And, but, but throw in a party pad at Winter Tour, right? Like the bachelor party pad with live music and, you know, all, the, all that stuff. Like it was just for you, okay? My pleasure. Let's see, this is just for me. Anybody on the outside would probably think, that's a bit much, right? All of that just for you? And anybody knows, like, no matter how much you amass or experience or just gather under your, the roof of your house, like, we all know there's not going to be, nobody's going to say, ah, I finally got the right thing. I finally experienced the right thing. I finally built the right, you know, beautiful this or that. And that's it. Now I have meaning. It's all answered. All my longings are filled. Of course not right? But that's the thing is that it was the I, I, I question, right? He was seeking to consume all of these things. And as we all know, he could not find satisfaction, but there's more going on to this story. Okay. One scholar points out as he talks about this building project and the gardens he was building and the waters and all this stuff, he, he was using the many, many, many of the same exact words that were used in Genesis chapter one and two when God created the world and planted his garden. And many scholars believe that this, this teacher here is by borrowing all the same kind of verbs or, or nouns of, of things that God created that he, he was trying to plant his own Eden. His project was trying to essentially do what God did and, and make his own garden for himself right? He's trying to make us think about Eden. And he said, yeah, I tried to build my own guys plus some. No, it didn't, it didn't work. Right. And just like Eden with the tree, the knowledge of good and evil that was inside of it, he mentions that he was pursuing wisdom and folly and nothing was delivering. Right. And so we continue on here in verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? What's the point? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. This too is habel, right? That word. For the wise man like the fool will not long be remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated 
life. We talked about his, this is a, a dark night for him, a dark night of the soul, as uh, St. John of the Cross would refer to it. As, his, as he pursued his existential search, this wasn't a happy one. It was a dark one, right? And he grew to hate his life and his search, he says, because of the work done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless at chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless, Abel. So my heart began to despair over all of my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all the owns to someone else who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. There's some repetitive ideas from last week's sermon. We won't spend a lot here, a lot of time here. If you missed last week's sermon, check it out where we touched on this a little more. But wisdom was pursued in his little Eden project, right? Trying to create the beauty of God himself, right? That even if there's some advantage for wise living in this life under the sun, right? That's the one vision of life that's kind of cut off from God. Just all you see is what you get kind of life as he's pursuing that life, right? Um, it, he says it's, it's meaningless, right? Because the wise and the fool both have the same end. You build all this great stuff. And then when you die, who gets it? Who's going to be a steward of it? Are they going to take care of it? Are they going to, you know, uh, uh, take, you know, pursue the vision you had for it or just waste it all, blow it all? But then, so why am I doing anything in the first place to hand off or somebody else to inherit? And this is kind of where his mind is at. It's a pretty dark place, right? And this is kind of the conclusion to it all. In verse 22, he says, what does a man get for all of the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All of his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Great anxiety came to him. He indulged himself in all this pleasure, right? He, he, he tried to pursue wisdom, even pursued folly, and it, it leads him to just anxious sleep, pain and grief, and devoid of meaning. Now, we'll get the vision of life before God here in a moment. He ends with that vision, so we're going to look at that. But I'm going to put a pause right here and try to take his, you know, search for pleasure and fast forward to 2023, how are we putting pleasure to the test in America? Because I think we're a nation that is almost existing at this point by trying to put pleasure to the test, right? How are we trying to build our little Edens? Are we trying to build our little Edens? So I did a lot of thinking about this and, and w w bear with me here. In America, I think that we're kind of convinced that we really can do it. Like I think we're, we're totally convinced that we can actually just consume to our heart's desire until we have finally found our Eden. At least that's what our consumer culture communicates to us day in or really minute in and minute out. I mean, yes, we've seen the commercials of the guy or the gal that was using the fake, you know, no brand toothbrush and they use Crest you know, and they couldn't get dates before, but now they use Crest and everybody's flocking to them. You know, we've seen those commercials. We're like, well, yeah, that's dumb and it's stupid and it's silly. And then we know they keep making them. We always keep watching them. But the commercial is not about the guy getting the girl or vice versa. It's about trying to convince us to buy the toothpaste, 
right? It's about buying the item, okay? Um, all those commercials have this little hint, small message that says that you and I are simply not, not enough unless we consume, unless we have something new, okay? And we all know that, but do we? I want to throw out some stats that says maybe we, we know it up here, but we don't actually live like that, okay? So listen to this. This is how intense this culture really is. Today, you and I, we're tracked in our every moments through our smartphones. If we visit a store in the mall the next morning, what advertisement will we see? That store, right? We're tracked in our every Google search and the stores we visit, they know how much debt we're in. They know when we pick up our phones and why we do it. According to what we click on, the advertisements appear just at the right time to communicate to us all the same things. Your life is devoid of some value and here's something that you need that can add value to it and add pleasure to it. The results... Our homes are, are completely filled with stuff that we don't really need or have any value to our life. We, have, we had a momentary pleasure, perhaps, of buying something to get that item, to be bored of it really quickly and repeat. And these days, this cycle occurs almost through magic because we hit that button as we were scrolling Amazon, within 24 hours, it's in a cheap cardboard box in our front doorstep, Right? It's almost magic. Imagine like 30 years ago, somebody telling you that's the future. It's like, what? Like, it happened, right? Pretty much anything you can imagine, conjure up in your imagination, can appear on your doorstep with a click of a button on a magical phone device. But here's the result. Guess how many items are in the average American household? 300,000. The average American household, you can find the research online, it's it's readily available. The average American household has 300,000 items. So do we really know that this consumer culture is a lie or do we not? Consider the time it takes for us to manage this stuff. This number applies not just to the rich, but to the poor as well, and the middle class and everywhere else. And even if our homes have hundreds of thousands of items, 38 to 40% of Americans still rent storage unit for what? More stuff. Think about this. The average American is $16,000 in credit card debt. And guess where those with the most credit card debt live in our country? You guessed it, the East Coast. Our Northern friends in New Jersey and Southern friends in Maryland are on the top like three. We're not on that list, but I assume that we're up there as well, right? What is the debt from? I can imagine it's from a lot of stuff that we really don't need, but we thought we needed in a moment's click of a button. Americans total combined debt in our country is $925 billion. This is just credit card debt just credit card debt. We are a nation putting pleasure to the test via buying and owning stuff. We by far have the most stuff in any nation, society, or culture in the history of the world. And in our little Eden building project, we're not finding pleasure. In fact, a cluttered home brings way more anxiety to us as our research shows. Um, We also spend lots of money on other entertainment, pleasure pursuits, elaborate vacations, cable TV or streaming services, endless hour of video games, 
attending self-help seminars or reading books on how to be happy and on and on. People on the outside look into America, right? And they, or they visit, they see our way of life here. And the, it, you, can, you can find it's fascinating to read foreigners who spend some time here and write about it. We're a nation obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure. It's almost solely why this, it seems to be why we exist in this nation is to pursue our own happiness, our own pleasure. So have we done it? Are we the happiest nation on earth? We certainly on the outside looking in, we have everything, right? An extensive survey was done by Gallup a few years back in over 140 countries. They asked some basic questions. Do you experience joy every day? Do you smile? Do you laugh every day? Right? Do you feel well rested every day? Sort of those kinds of questions, right? Simple questions that are kind of surface level signs of hopefully some kind of deeper, you know, uh, uh, peace within. Um, interesting finds on this survey um, was the most prosperous, pleasure seeking, richest nation on earth at, at the top of the list? No. Rwanda was higher than us. Some of the poorest Latin American countries, like Guatemala, topped the list. So what does this mean for us? This is, this is life lived in America. This is the American path that we're all on. I would say all of us. My wife and I, as I was preparing for this, I was like looking in my basement thinking, this is, yeah, like I have accumulated a lot of stuff. Like is this, right? Is it delivering us pleasure, this way of life under the sun, right? Our friend, our teacher here in God's word, he says it's meaningless to chase after these things. It began traced through this book, though, are two visions of life. And the chapter ends with a life lived before God, where there is meaning. Let's check that out here in verse 24. We'll t- come to some conclusions here. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So the tone shifts, right? The results of his search was, you know, true pleasure, the best life, the good life, what the Bible really calls shalom, the Hebrew word for, you know, peace, the life of peace that is actually available to you and I. He mentioned some, some really mundane things here. After mentioning all the elaborate building projects and such, he mentioned some really mundane things here. He says, we can do nothing better than what? Eating. Anybody eat this morning? Anybody have a drink of water this morning? Right? My wife cooks great pancakes. Every Sunday morning, you're invited to come have pancakes. Don't probably do that. I don't know. I guess you could. Let me talk to my wife first. Sorry. <laughs> Eating, drinking, finding satisfaction in our work. But didn't he just say work is meaningless? Ah, work under the sun is meaningless. The same work before God suddenly finds meaning. Verse 24, 25 is key. Eating and drinking and working is from the hand of God, for without him, who can find enjoyments? Revelation 4.11 is really interesting and fascinating. This is what it says. 
You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. The idea of God creating all things and all things being created by his will, he willed them into being. That's a fascinating idea. Things didn't just appear because God was bored. In like a moment of just, you know, spur of the moment, he could, no, his will brought about everything that exists. So why would you will something into being, right? In Genesis 1, when he created the world, after he finished creating at the end of each day, there's a repeated phrase. Somebody may know it here. And God saw that it was what? Good. He willed everything into being. And over and over again, this is great. This is so good. This is awesome. This is good. Creation in itself, apart from God, you're not going to find meaning in it. What's the end point of it? But before an almighty sovereign God who intentionally willed it about, and we see its beauty, and we see its wonder in our world, and we say, somebody created this? Who was that? Who was that person? Who, who, who was the God who created it? If this is beautiful, I can't imagine the beauty of its creator, of the power of its creator, of the majesty of its creator. Psalm 18 says, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 148 that we read uh, right before we started our service just extols praise over and over to God, the author of all creation, how creation just screams his praise back. And so creation cut off from God isn't meaningful, but creation before God is a worship service out there. It's a big, giant worship service out there. I should say that Revelation 4.11 is translated differently. The KJV actually translates it as um, God created it for his good pleasure. And I think that's accurate, right? For God's will is his pleasure. This world was created for the pleasure of God. He enjoys it. Now, I know it's complicated. I know there's a lot of questions that go into that. You know, is a hurricane part of his pleasure? And those are, you know... Meaningful questions, a sermon for a different day. There are some answers to those questions. Yet when he created humankind in Genesis 1, he said something else about that creation. It wasn't just good. He said, oh, this is, this is very good. This is very good. He was greatly pleased in us. And his design of humans, um, uh, they were the one that you and I considered his design here. Unlike God, you and I are in continual need. You wake up, your stomach is rumbling. You can't go forever without food. You can't go forever without water. Try to fight sleep. In high school once, we tried to not sleep for as long as we could. We made it to like 30 hours. And then we just woke up like, oh, we didn't do it. You know, like, that was a good, you know. Eventually, you just collapse. Eventually, you collapse. You have to sleep at some point in time. Right? And he also put us in the world that is in need of work. That the things that we need to sustain ourselves takes work to get. An apple tree goes apples, but the apples don't just magically fall into your hands. You gotta go get them. You want more apple trees? Go plant more, right? He placed us in a beautiful world that needs work if we're to sustain 
ourselves. This is his design, right? So this vision being cast by the teacher in Ecclesiastes is actually quite rich, and it, it, it returns to the very original kind of simple design of humanity that he's calling us to go back to, right? Because our world has created false visions and false manners of living that says this will deliver the happiness and pleasure you're looking for. And he says, no, 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 no. Let's just kind of go back to the beginning and who we are as humans before God. When you eat a meal, right? When you sleep, when you drink, do it before God, you're gonna find joy. It's possible to find joy in those simple activities before God, right? Now, I wanna remind you of all of what is at the teacher's disposal, right? And let me remind you of the American hunt for pleasure through a life lived the consumption of stuff and buying more stuff and consuming more stuff and filling our houses and storage units with more stuff and the Netflix binging and et cetera and, and so forth, right? And he says, no, 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 just... You know, those things aren't, you know, some of it can be bad. Some of it's neutral or just a good chill thing to do on a Friday night when you're resting. That's fine. But existentially, it's just not going to deliver, right? Um, Adam was put to work in Genesis 2. We were told to subdue and cultivate the world in Genesis chapter 1. And thus we labor in this beautiful world created by God to sustain ourselves. And if you recognize your work in life, whatever work that's before you, your job, right? If you're retired, do you still have work to do, right? We all know every day there's work before us. If your work is done before God, the joy of your work becomes not dependent on the paycheck you're getting. Can we imagine such a simple life before God to share in his pleasure? Because that's what he's inviting us to do. God enjoys this world and he's saying, come enjoy it with me. Share in the pleasure that I get from the goodness of this world. Now the church father, Irenaeus, who's alive uh, about a, a couple hundred years after Christ, he had this to say. He said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is a human person fully alive. What is he talking about? I think he's talking about what this teacher here in Ecclesiastes is. To be fully alive before God is a life oriented towards God, where true pleasure and enjoyment is found not in something we can do on our own, right? The truth is, the spiritual reality of this is we can't flip to switch our own hearts just to orient ourselves towards God with our own strength. Sin is present. Our nature wants to live our life as, it, as, it, as if it is under the sun with only ourselves at the center on our own Eden building project. Right? But Jesus once spoke to a crowd of water that he was offering to them. He said that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I want you to drink that water with God, before God. This is imagery pointing towards the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel when he looked forward to a day when God's very own spirit will be given to his people. They will be cleansed and sprinkled with water. And as my pages stick here, they receive a new heart with a soft flesh and their old hard hearts will be done away with forever. And so when Jesus paid for sin, he rose from the dead, he sent his spirit to this world, and according to Jesus' own will, his own joy, his own good pleasure, in John 5, 21, he says, for as a father raises the dead and gives them life, what does he say? So also the son gives life to whom he will. He freely gives his pleasure to us through his spirit. And as the spirit orients us towards God, 
We then are by God's grace and grace alone are brought into the ability to start seeing our life with new perspective. We're able to see our food and drink and sleep in our homes as things pointing us to the gracious provisions of God. And we can now enjoy them before God rather than trying to find pleasure in that meal itself or find joy in that meal itself as if they can deliver infinite pleasure as only the infinite God can do. Friends, only through Jesus can we share in the very pleasure of God. His spirit can open our eyes to see pleasures and joys all around us. That spiritual awakening that happens is possible to see God all around us and his work that surrounds us completely. A far greater joy than that Amazon box, that cheap cardboard box waiting for you when you get home today. To return to our thought experiment at the beginning of our time, Victor Frankl speaks of the folly of that man's thinking of finding no purpose in a delicious meal, even if he's two hours before death. He says this, the folly of the man's thinking is this, that the whole of life actually stands in the face of death. And if this man had been right to deny that meal, saying that was the point, right? If he's right, then all of our lives have no meaning because that's all of our futures until Christ returns, right? Our whole lives would also be meaningless if that man was right to deny the pleasure of that meal two hours before death. Were we only to strive for pleasure and nothing else? Because pleasure in itself cannot give our existence meaning. Life in Christ is what can transform a pleasurable hot meal just hours before death to be enjoyed before God. Because life in Christ turns our lives inside out, right? It becomes an act of worship, I want to close here with one more story, and it's from one of my favorite authors. I quoted him uh, probably too many times at this point. His name is Wendell Berry. I, I share this brief story because he's a Christian, and he shares this teaching in his worldview um, uh, constantly throughout his work. Being a farmer, working on the same land of his parents and grandparents in Kentucky, he learned to find enjoyment in the simplicity and the mundane of the hard work that he had before him as a farmer. And he has spent much of his life writing about it. So he has a book called, What Are People For? And he writes about sharing in God's pleasure in our work, just as he found goodness in his. And this is a simple story, but hear it out. He says, last December, when my granddaughter Katie had just turned five, she stayed with me one day while the rest of the family was away from home. In the afternoon, we hitched the team of horses to the wagon, because Barry doesn't use tractors on his farm, and he hauled a load of dirt for the barn floor. It was a cold day, but the sun was shining. We hauled our load of dirt over the tree-lined gravel lane beside the creek, a way well known to her mother and to my mother when they were children. As we went along, Katie drove the team for the first time in her life. She did very well, and she was proud of herself. She said her mother would be proud of her, and I said I was proud of her. We completed our trip to the barn, unloaded our load of dirt, smoothed it over the barn floor, and wetted it down. By the time we started back up the creek road, the sun had gone over the hill, and the air had turned bitter. Katie sat close to me in the wagon. We did not say anything for a long time. I didn't say anything because I was afraid that Katie was not saying anything because she was cold and miserable and perhaps homesick. It was impossible to hurry much. I was unsure how I would comfort her. But after a while... She looked up to me and she said, Wendell, isn't this fun? So why do I share that little story? 
All right, I'm going to ask a few questions as we close. Call the worship team up at this point. Do you delight in your work? Like, do you wake up tomorrow? Tomorrow's Monday. Our culture says, oh, Monday, you know, it's horrible. Wait till the weekend. No, 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 no. Like, are you looking forward to the work that God has given you to do in the morning? Do you take delight in that work? Are you simply working for a paycheck? Do you wake up complaining about your work? Are you kind of always kind of on the hunt for a new job? Like, where's the next best thing? Or do you find delight in what God has graciously given you? As work that is cultivating this world for, is your work, how is your work cultivating this world for the goodness that God intended it to be? Wendell told that story in his essay to paint a simple picture of delight, the kinds of delight that can be found in simple mundane work. Because this little five-year-old daughter just, she saw that joy. She said, this is great. We just unloaded dirt on the barn floor. Isn't this fun? Have you asked the Spirit of God to help open your eyes to the joy of, of your work before you? How does it serve others? How does your work help others? How does it bring glory to God? For loving God and loving our neighbor, that's Jesus' summary of the Bible, points us toward an orientation for our work that does not place us like this other life under the sun would have it. It does not place us at the center. I, 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 me, me, me. I need this. I need to do that. No, 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 no. The work done for God and for others, for the common good, for the service of others, those are the things that deliver life. Those are the things that deliver life. These sort of things reflect the life of heaven while a paycheck motivation and only working for the weekends will only keep you stuck on the endless cycle of looking for the next best thing, looking for cheap pleasures. When we feel the urge to complain about our work, I encourage you to zoom out, see it from God's perspective and pray to share in his joy and pleasure, even if you don't see it that day. And secondly, the life of consuming. I encourage you, as you return to your homes today, I encourage you to consider your consumption, your own buying and purchasing habits, and ask the question, why, behind the stuff that you do buy. Pull up your Amazon orders, right? Survey all of your purchasing. Some of those are legitimate needs, I'm sure, but how many of those purchases are not? How many are simply because you thought you might find joy in what you bought? again and again and again and again and again and you are stuck on that endless cycle you don't even recognize it if you leave this earth what stuff are you leaving behind stuff of value or endless items of decades of empty purchasing that brought only momentary happiness all for somebody else to sort through and probably throw away Maybe some of you, or maybe perhaps all of us in this country of consumption, we need to turn from a life of consumerism and turn by God's grace toward a life of consuming God. I know it sounds a little cheesy, but I really don't care how cheesy that is. We need to turn from a life of consumerism because that is the American way and find a much wonderful, more beautiful and better thing to consume, which is God himself. For when we receive God's spirit and he empowers us in life, it is not simply that he is giving us gifts or empowerment. No, he is giving us more of himself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Life is found in God, pleasure is found in God, enjoyment is found in God, and not in this American life of consumption. So as we close here, they're gonna sing a song. We'll have people available for prayer up here. Um, if, if anything in this sermon 
uh, just hit home with you. This is why we have what we call ministry time, people available to pray. I ask that you would respond to the voice of God this morning in your own hearts. And so Jesus, if there's anybody who needs to come forward, either maybe grab somebody and them or come forward for prayer, would you give them the courage to do so, Lord? If there's somebody who was just trapped in some of the things mentioned today and they're just kind of lost and just yearning for life, Lord, give it to them this morning. Open their eyes to see the empty things they're pursuing, Lord. May we be a church, Lord, that is, is consuming you with hearts just, just yearning for you and your goodness and your glory and your beauty. Jesus, if there's anybody who, who needs to be uh, just awakened into this sort of life, Lord, do it this morning, Lord. Perhaps someone this morning needs to become a Christian for the first time and they're, they're yearning for that awakening in their own hearts. Lord, give it to them this morning. Give them your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. We love you, Jesus, so much. Thank you for your grace as we fumble through this life. Lord, and may we see the, 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 just the, the glory and the joy of what life can be before you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.